On today's episode, we have Dr. Seth Oberst. Tim and I would never miss an opportunity to spend time with Seth, who is a hidden gem in the industry. He doesn't post much on social media, but he has an incredible reputation both personally and professionally as a physical therapist. For a little background on Seth, he is a doctor of physical therapy with a holistic, innovative approach to rehabilitation. Originally residency trained and board certified as a sports physical therapist, he now works with a diverse set of clients, many of whom are stuck mentally and physically and suffering from chronic tension, stress, pain, and trauma. Currently, Seth has a private practice in Atlanta, and while we're at it, he is a reoccurring presenter at the Boston Health and Performance Summit, which happens each year in June. Wink, wink. In this episode, we dive into the following topics. Regulating tactics, the illusion of infinite progression, developing a sustainable movement practice, being a guide to your client's process, projecting uncertainty, tactical urgency, phases of the learning process, when to bail if the approach isn't working, and much, much more. So without further ado, here is our episode with Dr. Seth Oberst. I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. Dr. Seth Oberst, great to have you back on. Great to be back on. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I was commenting that the uh, the, the finished basement behind you looks far more finished than when we last have you had you on, which, if memory serves, was like February of 2022. Yeah, well, I've been doing yeoman's work here to to bring it up to snuff. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my library is replete with information. It's a, it's a venerable bookshelf that you have there <laughs> with some kind of a geometric design that I assume, uh, wards off, uh, like EMFs. That is a, that is a good explanation. Um, it's actually, uh, a Buckminster Fuller, uh, Oh, Buckyball. Yes. That's actually, that's actually way cooler and way nerdier. Yeah. 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 But I just, I don't know where to put it. So I just put it up there. So it's yeah, in like so a collapsed, it's kind of in like a lazy half collapsed state most of the time. I think atop a bookshelf with, I assume textbooks is exactly where a buckyball should be residing. That's right. That's right. That's right. Do you guys uh, think so, so, my IQ goes up when I join you guys with glasses? Yes. There you go. There you go. It's actually, I, I, I think there's too much intelligence on the, on the call now. Okay. Yeah. Say. We're going to be. We're going to be too high. I've never seen those glasses before. Where are those Still glasses? They're a little low on the scale. They're actually solely for blue light. They actually, there's no prescription here. Good. I, anyway. I now have, because I watched uh, Seth's presentation from the uh, Health and Performance Summit a year ago. I, I, I am now rethinking everything I thought I knew about glasses. Mm. As you should. The Boston Health and Performance Summit, that is, every June. Of, uh, <laughs> annual event, actually. Seth's there every year, so. <laughs> well done. Uh, it was well played. Thank you. So Seth, we 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 have uh, polled our audience, and they have not disappointed with some questions to ask you. Uh, quite the cornucopia of health, wellness, uh, esoterica. 
But I, th I think, you know, Michelle and I always like to start on a little bit more of a personal note. And we've talked about your, like the last workout that you did or kind of how you think about physical training for yourself. But I'm wondering kind of from like a mindfulness meditation standpoint, for you as a human being, do you have any practice that would reside in either of those boxes these days? And if so, what's that look like? Yeah, I would say that the majority of my kind of mindfulness practice is honestly going on walks. Um, and so I <clears throat> try to go on at least two a day, usually a morning and an evening, um, sometimes with the family, sometimes solo. But I have found that it's actually the most, um, the easiest way for me to um, kind of re-regulate. And I feel the best after I go for a walk. So I normally it's like 20, 30 minutes. Sometimes I'll listen to, you know, like a podcast or something. But honestly, most of the time it's just, um, I just go for a walk. Uh, and particularly helpful. And there's some studies on this too, but like, you know, particularly helpful for when I'm feeling, um, to, uh, struggling to make decisions, which historically is more of a challenge for me. You know, I struggle sometimes to make the tough decisions and, uh, but for whatever reason, like going for a walk almost always, uh, really clears my head. Um, do you, so, yeah. when, <laughs> when you have a decision that you're struggling with, do you attempt to prime that walk with you know like some some type of an intention or do you find that as soon as you start putting feet in front of the other kind of the the answers will inevitably come to you well i think that i'm definitely primed for it because my typical mo is that when i have something on my mind i will uh uh ruminate on it until i reach a conclusion so i'm already on that thing so it's mostly like i need to go on a walk so that i don't feel like i'm gonna go insane so in, in that, that, that would be the priming that I have, uh, prior to, to go on for the walk. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think that I'll usually do some journaling around the topic as well. And so that would be my other answer to your original question, which is some mindfulness kind of stuff. And the way I do it is mostly just what I guess would be classically called like expressive journaling or Pennebaker journaling, which is basically just, I write for five to 15 minutes on all of the things that are bothering me or, and, or are on my mind. Um, and then I just get them off of my mind. And I find that to be very, very helpful because there's certain things that, you know, we kind of pontificate over that sounds silly when we say them out loud or to other people, no matter how safe that scenario may be, sometimes it's just helpful to write it all out. And then normally what I do is actually just get rid of that piece of paper. Like I literally throw it in the trash. Um, because it's just, it's like closing tabs on my computer. You know, if your computer's running slow or glitchy, what do you do? You close the tabs and you restart the computer. And so just me getting off that stuff on my working memory is really helpful. And I recommend it a lot to clients when they're struggling with sleep. Uh, is just have like a bedside kind of notepad that turns into a quasi gratitude slash complaining journal slash to-do list and just get it off your working memory. And I find that to be uh, very helpful. That's yeah, that's interesting. It's like there's um, this big idea in kind of the education space that the best way to solidify your understanding of a topic is to teach it. And I, and I, I think that's very much true because, you know, students are going to sort of poke and prod at ideas. But I think the step below that is to write out your understanding. And this is like we've had Bill Hartman talk about this. Uh, I know Michelle's talked about this with Pat Davidson, like not on the podcast, but um the act of like the second you have to start constructing sentences 
you have to give your thoughts a little bit more structure and they have to follow some type of a logical sequence. And it really, uh, oftentimes for me, kind of shines a flashlight on the uh, the lack of logic I've been applying to a particular topic. So there, there, and and of course, I mean, you can't you can uh, overstate the catharsis of just you know it, it it feels like you're getting ideas out of your head through your hand through the pen onto the paper, and then whether you throw that away or have some kind of ritualistic Burning Man type ceremony, uh, either is good. Well, I think that you know it comes back to for me um organ organization and i think when you write things down or write them out um and i think there is some power in actually physically writing them out by hand rather than typing them into your phone or into your computer um is that you're kind of organizing it in time and space you're it's floating around in this kind of timeless state which is your brain and you're you're kind of crystallizing it uh, onto a piece of paper. And a lot of times it loses, I think in a positive way, some of these charged up topics can lose some of their, um, some of their excessive charge, you know, and, and you kind of get them on paper, uh, and that can be really, really helpful. So to me, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's some organization that occurs and you can, you'll often find like just how disorganized your thoughts really are on this topic when you start writing about something. Um, at least for me, you know, I think it's like, oh, I finally, you know, I figured this out and then I start writing it down. I'm like, I don't know anything about this. So do, do, do you have any thoughts with, on, you know, uh, more conventional, like sitting meditation or other mindfulness practices, either uh, like recommending to patients or stuff that you've uh, tried for yourself that hasn't quite worked? Yeah, I have done a lot of sitting meditation and I have found it to be very helpful, but I found that, um, I just didn't feel, <clears throat> I think that for a lot of people, and I would include myself in this, is that if I slow, I think people kind of get stuck in this pattern where if I uh, if I get too relaxed or too, slow too down, then I paradoxically feel somewhat unsafe. And, and I think that <clears throat> um, movement can be a nice kind of midway point where you're you, when you're kind of in, in acting as an agent upon your environment rather than being a passive recipient of the environment i think that there's something really um regulating about that um so it's not that i have anything against sitting meditation i have done it i find it helpful i just find that i feel better when i go for a walk or journal um it feels for me personally a little too passive sometimes um perhaps that's more indication that i should be doing just that but uh, yeah, I think it's whatever works for each person. And there, this idea that like the only way, and I'm not saying this is your idea, but the kind of common narrative, I think sometimes is that if you're not meditating, you're not being mindful. And that the only practice of mindfulness or meditation is I have to be sitting in a lotus position in a quiet room with, you know, a, an essential oil diffuser and, a, you know, some sort of like tapestry on the wall. And that can be very, very helpful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against those creating a, a nice environment, but I, I think there's lots of different ways to, to engage that. And I think for me, uh, it's just, I find it to be less effective than other methods. Going back to walking, do you find that some people take it a little too far when they try to do it for mindfulness or meditation or kind of desire to add intensity by um, the popularity of like rocking now where you're adding load the pack and then people kind of not becoming obsessive, but just doing it for the purpose of getting a step count and tracking their step count very intensely. 
What do you think the influence is on like adding intensity and like data with that? I think it's fine, but then you can't call it. I don't think you can call it the same thing. So you have to define your goals. If mm-hmm. your goal is to get a workout, um, that's great. Yeah. My goal typically when going for a walk is to clear my mind and feel a little bit more connected and, and kind of recentered. That's true for me. Now, it doesn't mean that adding load is necessarily taking away from that completely. But at some point when you start to be obsessed with metrics, um, I think that you lose a little bit of the sight of that of that overall goal. But again, I think it's really knowing yourself and knowing what feels most regulating for you. You know, so so for me, I if I'm tracking metrics excessively in the scenario like you described, where I'm trying to get steps or maybe you're tracking, you know, heart rate or whatever your kind of variable is. Um, I think that there's a natural amplification towards that where it's like, okay, so if my heart rate's here, it either needs to be lower or higher. My step rate is here. It needs to either be more or less, you know, if there's weight on my back. And so then it becomes this kind of, um, this constant judgment. And I think that that's fine, but I think it's, I think it's two different purposes. And I think, you know, you need to name what that is. Um, and it, again, that comes down to each person's situ- you know, personal scenario and how they feel about that topic. Like for me, like I couldn't track sleep. Like I used to use like the Fitbit things and all that. And I, I found it actually hindered my sleep because I was constantly trying to, like, I would wake up feeling okay. You know, I guess I'm pretty well. And then I look at my Fitbit and I'm like, oh, I didn't sleep well. And so it kind of gets in this variable where it's like, well, am I trusting my own in- tuition and how I feel versus this objective me- objective metric that may or may not be very accurate. Um, and, and, you know, it's the same with all of these kind of uh, tracking, tracking metrics. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm good. I'm good with them, yeah. but sometimes we have to make it, we, we have to, we can't lose the sight of what we're really trying to do, which is most people, at least in the context in which I work, want to feel better. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, do you feel better? Yes or no. And if someone says, yes, I'm feeling better, who am I to talk them out of feeling better by saying your metrics are bad? Now, they might be indicative of certain things down the road that we want to have a conversation about, but you know, there's there's a combination of of kind of factors there. So yeah, Tim and I have talked in the context of running where like people just get obsessed with uh, the data from each run and not doing it without their watch and taking away from the experience of of what it could be. Uh, some may say reframing that, yeah. Yeah, I think it just depends on the goals and the context. Yeah. I, I think this has become kind of a, and at Seth, we know that you're a big fan of the podcast and listen to every episode. So, you know, I'm saying Multiple this for the, yeah. for, for the audience and not for you, but the, the theme of this season has been um, kind of the improved management of folks with persistent and chronic pain. And it just seems like one of the major through lines that Michelle and I have stumbled upon Um through no, you know, active force of will, but it just keeps coming up over and over again is, is this illusion of infinite progression where like we want people to get fitter. We want people to add pounds on a bar or like we want to be pushing fitness things, but it doesn't matter who you are. You could be the rock. Like at some point, there's not going to be an option to add more pounds on the bar and everybody's going to have their own idiosyncratic stop point. And, you know, hopefully it's, it's a decision as opposed to like age or injury or illness. Um, but it's, it's an interesting line in the sand to draw between, Hey, I'm just going to do two 20 minute walks a day because that's good for me versus I'm going to do two 20 minute walks a day. And then I'm going to build them out to 30 minute to 40 minute, then increase the pace. And and to your point, it's about having intent, but I really, and this is something that maybe we can get into, but this idea that like not everything needs to be for something 
or yes. even that a particular intervention can be for something, but it doesn't need to be progressed. They can just exist in that state. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, I think we already understand this is what you're really describing in, in my interpretation is you're really describing appropriate dosage. So if I have a headache and I take aspirin and it helps my headache get better, is the answer then that I should take more aspirin and more aspirin and more aspirin? Because if some was good, more is better. You know, it's like the dosage makes the poison, whether it's aspirin or exercise or water, um, you know, and so I think that um, it really comes back to uh, what are your defining your goals and defining, and it doesn't even have to, I don't even necessarily mean always goals that have to be obsessively tracked. I'm just saying like, why am I, defining your intention maybe is a better way to put it. Like, why am I doing this thing that I'm saying is important to me? And, you know, a lot of times I'll ask when I have a cl client come in and they're doing a bunch of different exercises, um, you know, to ostensibly help a problem that they're having. And I'll just ask them, what are these exercises doing for you? And it doesn't mean that I think that they're bad or good. I'm just asking like, what are these exercises doing for you? Why are you doing them? And it's and probably not surprised to you or maybe the audience, but always it always interests me how often people don't really have an understanding of why they're doing stuff. And I'm not asking for a deep anatomical explanation. I'm just saying like, are you doing it because it helps your neck feel better? Are you doing it to help you relax? Are you doing it to get yourself stronger? And they just kind of do stuff. And I think that's true in a lot of the ways in this kind of more health health and wellness space, whether that's supplements. I mean, I think people do the same with supplements. They just take a bunch of stuff because that's what they saw on you know social media or their friend told them to take. Um, and you know, those can have value, but it just depends on why we're doing what we're doing. So really defining the intentions and having an understanding of what we're doing it. So that I think to our earlier point, it kind of puts the, it categorizes things. It organizes our mind. It's like, okay, this is for that thing. Um, and, and I think it kind of crystallizes it a little bit more for us. I think we tend to get really myopic with health and fitness outcomes. Like Sam Harris talks about this quite a bit in the context of meditation, but um, you know, like in 2023, like there's a, um, there's no shortage of research detailing how effective meditation is for immune function, like cardiovascular health risk, like all, like, like a lot of, a lot of things. And his point's always, okay, but if none of those, uh, if none of those were true, then meditation would still be a worthwhile pursuit because it's, it's looking inward and getting a better relationship with your mind. And I kind of feel the same about exercise and a movement practice to some degree that like, yes, it's useful to improve power production, muscle mass, joint mobility. But if none of those things were going to happen, it still seems like a very worthwhile pursuit, at least in my opinion, to just move your body on a daily basis in all the ways that it can comfortably move, regardless of whether or not there's a direction of progression there. I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, as you guys are probably aware a lot of my my thinking always comes back to like how do i perceive my environment is this safe or dangerous and movement is a wonderful way to act as an agent upon my environment to theoretically make us feel safer right like <clears throat> as a higher order mammal like we're not designed to completely collapse and shut down all the time and when a person is in that state they're very unwell like i think moving forward through space and time helps you to feel safer. Now, of I, course, I, you I, can take it to the extreme, like you alluded to earlier, Michelle, and like, you know, running from something by overtraining, that's certainly a problem. But, 
you know, I, I think that can't movement just be beneficial because it feels good, you know? Yeah. Well, well said. And I, I credit you for really getting me to think about this, but I forget if the term is visual flow or optic flow. Optic flow. Yeah. But just the tremendously, I'm, I'm hesitant to even call it therapeutic because in my mind, it's adding that which we should really have constantly in our environment. To your point, it's like we're, 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 we're supposed, we're designed to be moving forward through our environment. So yep. um, I, I know for me, like walks, longboarding, uh, anything where the, the flow I can perceive, like a car is too fast, um, it just tends to be incredibly useful for getting me out of uh, whatever maladaptive mental state I happen to be in. I totally agree. And, you know, one of the things I've really observed uh, with our, uh, we have an eight month old um, baby. And when she, sometimes she just needs the stimulation of, you know, of course, because she's a baby person, human, she needs to move forward through space and time too. And uh, one of the things that's very helpful from a stimulation perspective to actually paradoxically help her sleep is to hold her and carry her around. Right. Because there's this idea that like, if I'm totally stuck in this state, then I'm actually not very safe. But if dad's holding me or mom's holding me and I'm kind of moving, okay, I can actually let my guard down. This season of more train, less pain is brought to you by my remote fitness programming service. We've been talking a lot about navigating the minefield that is attempting to train and improve fitness while dealing with persistent pain. If you feel like this directly applies to you, it can be daunting to attempt to construct your own workouts and long-term programs. Personally, one of the best decisions I ever made was to outsource that process and hire a coach. Someone who's external to the day-to-day -day reality of being in my body and my brain that can take my preferences, feedback, and athletic goals and coalesce them into a stable, doable fitness program that I could execute. It's an honor to serve in that role for my clients and my athletes. Stop banging your head against a proverbial wall and spinning your wheels changing workouts every week. Start investing in a long-term process to discover what your body is capable of and the long-term progress that you can make. Reach out via the contact tab on timrichart.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. Another question that we got was in relation to one of the biggest themes on this season I think we talk about it a lot in regards to what's your approach for changing a patient's relationship with chronic or persistent pain versus maybe attempting um, or even communicating that you're going to solve it. Well, I think that, um, you know, what I, and this is just how I describe these things. So, you know, each person's mileage may vary, but the way I describe it is I don't fix anything with my clients. I look at myself as, as a guide and ultimately, you know, th their body and their experience is going to, you know, quote, fix their problem. Um, and so, so <clears throat> when we think about changing a relationship to chronic or persistent pain, it starts to me with um, interaction about that and even language about it. So one of the questions that I ask on my intake form, and, and I'm a big, anyone who's ever worked with me knows I'm a big fan of this, is, is the actual actual visualization and creating a, like a, 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 um, a vision for what would this look like without this pain? So like, you know, rather than, because when a person comes into my office, they'll often spend a lot of time, understandably so, telling me about all these things that this pain is problematic and what their life isn't. 
And that needs to be heard and listened to. But at some point we have to move forward to what would your life be if you didn't have this issue? Um, and creating that trajectory, I think, is the first step in getting out of it rather than, um, well, let's go through and um, you know talk about all the ways that this has screwed your life up. We already know it screwed your life up. That's why you're here. And um, and so, so I think it's about, and it doesn't mean that I'm all for just, you know, uh, unrealistic, positive, you know, over, overly positive type stuff, but we have to have an understanding of like, okay, what is your life going to look like without this? How willing are you to take steps to change this? And, and I have people rate that on their forums, like zero to 10, like how willing, how, how willing and able are you to make the necessary changes to achieve the goals that you stay, say you want? Interestingly, I find two things very true. One, I don't trust the people that I don't trust the answers that people give when they're very low, nor do I say when they're very, very high. The people who tend to do the worst are the ones that have the, they say 10 out of 10. I'll do anything. And then they, they don't. But, um, and then two out of 10 or one out of 10 is actually interesting in that, like, I don't believe that because they're there, right? They're spending money, they're spending time to come see me. So I think that that's not necessarily accurate representation either. But I always ask it because I want to create the environment that allows them to see, okay, what are the roadblocks in the way for me doing what I say I want to do? Because a lot of times people have a, a, a view of what's important to them that's actually maybe not that important, or it's 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 what another person thinks is important for them. You know, and so it's I, I think the other way to, that we really start um, in in changing a relationship with persistent pain. And by the way, I use persistent, not chronic. Chronic indicates that it won't get better. Persistent just means it's been around for a while. Um. Is that is we we have to figure out okay what are your what are the things that are meaningful to you because if you don't have the priorities then what you do is you will use other people's priorities and I think with our obsession you know with social media we you know so many people will be like well I want to you know um, lift weights like do CrossFit or I want to run a marathon and that might be true I'm not saying that those are bad or not true but how how do you know you want to do those things? My goal is for you should be able to get to a point you have the opportunity to do them. Whether or not you choose to do them is your your you know of course your discretion. But um, so so to summarize, it's one creating this environment in which I am not the be all end all. I am just a guide here, and we are creating a relationship and a, a collaboration. Not you're seeing a guru because I think a guru type scenario. And I don't mean necessarily people call themselves gurus, but this kind of like hierarchy where the the provider is this kind of all knowing, all seeing, and if you just do what I say, you'll be better. Um, sometimes that has merit, but I think that the worshiping of that becomes really problematic. Um, and so we we establish a collaboration, and then we we really start to look at what are the things that you want to be doing, um, and and creating an environment that facilitates you doing what you want to be doing, not creating an environment of what you're not doing what you want, not being able to do things because you're stuck in this mindset of, I can't get better. So a lot of times for some clients, because a lot of my clients are, have already seen a lot of different practitioners before they come to me. So I, this, that's of course my bias, but some, a lot of times it's actually just pulling back from doing so many things, you know, they're doing an infrared sauna and they're doing a, uh, you know, they're doing 12 exercises that their PT gave them. And then they see a chiropractor twice a week. And then they go to a massage therapist and, and they're trying to feel better. I get that. But 
there's no signal amongst all that noise because you have so many hands in the kitchen. And so we, you know, partially it's just, you know, let's refine what, what you're doing and why you're doing these things, you know, is this thing you're doing helping you? Yes or no. I want to piggyback on a point that you made kind of earlier in that answer, just because it's, it's really emerged as a, a quite important through line in this season, which is when you, you reference your intake questionnaire and how willing or I forgot what the verbiage was, but like, you know, to what extent are they willing to take action? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. How willing are you to change on a scale of zero to 10? How, how willing are you to do the things necessary to change zero to 10? Yeah. And, and I, so um, I had an episode with Sam Leffers, who's a, he's a clinical psychologist um, or a, a psychological counselor, something to that effect. And we talked for a while about the removal of urgency in managing patients with persistent pain. And when I think about what you just said, when it's a zero or one out of 10, that is a patient with not enough urgency. That's a patient that lacks self-efficacy and a belief that things actually can get better and, and might get better. Conversely, you know, that you, when you get to that eight, nine or 10, that's sort of the patient with their hair on fire that is willing to just keep dumping noise and will drown out any signal. Um, this isn't a question so much as I'm just kind of curious to get your take on it because I've really been thinking through it quite a bit as, as, you know, both a patient struggling with persistent hip pain and a clinician helping people through that, where I think the, the appreciation that the urgency does exist, that this state is not one that I wish to be in for, you know, many more years or many more decades, but that it doesn't need to change today, or it doesn't need to change this week. I think putting an appropriate time scale on it lets people maintain the motivation, um, but still make clear, rational decisions that aren't entirely predicated on uh, needing to get a solve right now. I totally agree with you. And, and it comes back to, I think, you know, this momentum, right? There's there's this, I, I think sometimes <clears throat> momentum can be very helpful and also very problematic, which is, you know, you get stuck in this, this um, kind of conveyor belt of, I've just got to solve this and I'll do and see whoever. And then you start making decisions that maybe aren't in your long-term best interest you know, whether that's surgeries or injections or um, whatever the, you know, more permanent type changes um, that I think happens as a result of momentum. And I totally am compassionate to it because it happens when we're stressed. And when we're stressed, we get caught up in, I've got to solve this right now. This is an emergency. I might die if I don't do this. And, and the reality is most things are not going to immediately kill you. And if they are, I'm not the right person to see you anyway. <laughs> so, you know, you think you'll go to your hospital so, you know, in, in, and, um, and so it's this delicate balance between creating enough urgency that we want to have the motivation to solve this. And what I mean by solve it is facilitate change. But on the same token, there's, there's a desperation in certain scenarios that also needs to be kind of, uh, you know, reframed so that you can see things with a little bit clearer eyes and, and be more logical as you go through that process. Yeah, that feels right to me. Um, it's, I don't know, I, I think a lot about in, in my other life, I do consulting with a technology company. So I do a lot of like sales staff training. And there are, I mean, there's good and bad with with sales, obviously, but um, urgency is a, is a big tenant that we talk about there. And um, you're kind of trying to lay it on when you're when you're uh, trying to make a business make a decision about taking on a product. But um it's just interesting with patient management because it's 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 not that you're trying to minimize it. It's you you, you want enough urgency that they're actually going to do the thing, that they're not going to actually just like sit on this for another six months or twelve months or eighteen months. Absolutely, so you need to be in that middle ground of being able to uh, leverage what they come in with and either spin them up or spin them down as needed. 
totally agree with you. And I think that comes from ultimately clear communication and um, having a, a coherent plan through collaboration. Well said, my man. Um, another question we received was, how do you balance resistance from patients on non-traditional physical therapy modalities? And then maybe an additive of that question would be, how important do you think it is for um, clinicians to familiarize themselves with other points of intervention, such as nutrition, sleep, uh, relationships, things like that? Well, I think for the for the first part in terms of resistance from from clients on non-traditional modalities, um, I it's I don't know, and I've thought about this a lot, so I'll offer a couple of things kind of thoughts I have. I rarely get a lot of resistance, hmm. um, and it doesn't mean that it never happens. But what I find is that I actually think more of the resistance is actually from the provider, not the patient. And what I mean by that is, is that because I have experienced this myself when trying something new, um, <clears throat> is that I feel uncertain as the clinician and I project that uncertainty onto the, the, the client. Most people as long, so, so here's the, here's the other, other overarching framework. If you can have a logical explanation as to why you are doing something, that makes sense to the client, then I, I rarely have any resistance. You know, it's like, I remember when I first, I was teaching, I, I was I taught a course and I remember um, talking to someone and I was like, really nervous about giving my talk. You know, it was like, it was the first time I was teaching it. It was two days, I created it myself. And so it was like really putting myself out there. And, you know, this person said to me, it's like, well, you know, the people that are buying tickets to your, your buying, they want to see you succeed. You know, if, if I go to a play, 99% of the people at the play, the, the patrons want to see a good play. They don't want to see people screw up and mess up. You know, if I watch a football game, I want to see a good game. I don't want to see some awful game where everybody screws up, you know? Even even when it's your biggest rival, you still want to see like the rival. You do what you want to win a well fought game, right? Well, the same is true when people come into your office as a as a client. They want you to do well because that benefits them. So, what that means is that I think operating from a place of authenticity and confidence in what you're doing. And if you're not confident in what you're doing, that's okay. But just acknowledge that that's a limitation for you that you want to continue to get better at doing. What I think happens is, is that when we, when, when clinicians are constantly faking it and not speaking from a place of understanding, that's when patients pick up on that. And then they give that resistance because it feels like you don't know what you're doing. So I think just having confidence, practicing your skills, and I'll even name, like I, what's, I'm still, of course, learning every day and trying new things. I will tell a client, we're going to try something new today. Here's what I'm thinking. Based on what you're telling me, here's what I'm seeing in my my assessment. I've been learning something new, or I've been really researching this topic. Would you be open if we try X, Y, and Z? And like, they always are down for that. In fact, a lot of times they'll even thank me, like, "Oh, that's awesome! Absolutely, let's do it." You know, tell me what we're doing. Let's let's where do we start? And so, involving them in the process, I actually think is 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 a, a lot more enjoyable for the clinician and actually reduces a lot of resistance. 
ultimately, I, I was just let me just finish this one thing. I was just gonna say the other thing I was just gonna say is is that like ultimately, do I really want to do anything with a client that's super resistant to it? Is that ever gonna go well? If there's it, like if I'm gonna do a manual intervention and they're like super tense and fighting me, is that gonna be a beneficial? It's always gonna be bad. So, so I think rather than blaming the the client, why don't we start? We have to I think first start to look at it, the practitioner. It's like how confident am I in this thing? Yeah, I think um, to your point, when I was going, so as I was going through physical therapy school, which was about a decade ago at this time, I was also taking way too many PRI courses. Like that was kind of the, that was, that, that was the interest for me at that time, trying to fix myself and trying to see things in a different lens. I do think those were helpful to some degree, but oh. um, as I evolved, you know, into a, a young independently practicing clinician, I think I was very self-conscious about the delta between you know, what like a normal physical therapist would be doing. And some of the, at the time, what I, what I perceived to be weird things, which was just like breathing and hip shifting. And um, they're really not point, that weird. They're really not that weird. No, ex exactly. And to your point, like I would go into, I would go into these like soliloquies about like, well, a physical therapist would give you clamshells here, but here's what, and it took me a while to really understand. And actually content creation for Instagram helped me understand this. No one cares. Like they don't care at all because they don't have that first story that you have to do battle with. You're the one that has that story. That's right. And you can cut out this giant middleman by just being like, I understand that your knee hurts. What I'm seeing is that your pelvis doesn't really like to rotate in the opposite direction. Let, let's just get after that. Does that sound reasonable? And that's, I mean, that is so much cleaner from a communication standpoint than, all right, so here's the reason why we're not going to do quad strengthening. It's right. Right. Now I will answer that question. If someone directly asks me, why aren't you doing this or that? Um, but but I absolutely agree with you that why create an obstacle that you then have to climb over? The person is there because they want to be there. I mean, I think about this a lot. Like, do you know how much, like how annoying you you guys have gone to appointments of your own? It's a it's annoying to go to appointments. You have to plan it around your day. You have to commute there. You have to pay for it. You know, you I mean, you're looking at like, you know, it, it's I, I work with people on an hourly basis, you know, per hour. So, you know, you figure, and I live in Atlanta, lots of traffic, nobody lives close. I mean, you're looking at a two-hour commitment between commuting, getting to the appointment, doing this stuff. You know, I mean, that is a significant co commitment from a person. And I think we as clinicians often don't appreciate that enough. Um, and we create all these, all these more obstacles for that. We create more obstacles for that. It's like, dude, the obstacles are there. They're here. They have your attention as long as their phone is not on them. You've already got, you're already winning. So just help them out. Don't create more obstacles by explaining why you're not going to do something or why that other PT across the street's no good or why chiropractic is no good or like eliminate all that stuff and just get down to like, what is your goal? Which is to, is it to boost your ego or is it to actually help the person in front of you? Yeah, very well. And that's the, I, I don't know any way to make a clinician come face to face with that other than, than having to do it enough and, and fail a few times. Yep. But that's, yeah. that is truly what it is. Like a, a, a lot of what people are fighting as clinicians is in fact their own ego. I would agree with you. Lessons yeah. will be, you know, lessons will be repeated until, uh, or um, mistakes will be repeated until lessons are learned.
So this is, and I, I do want to give credit. Um, the uh, the fan that asked that question was uh, Libby Tegler, who's the massage therapist at, at where I practice physical therapy. I think she's actually coming, and yeah, yeah, you know Libby, yeah, cool, um, great human mm-hmm. being, really bright. Uh, she's awesome. If you're looking for a yeah. good massage yeah. therapist in the Denver area, I highly recommend her. But she's awesome. The second, I can, this, I can definitely agree with that. The second part of that question that she asked that I've now been kind of turning around in my head for a few days. Uh, has to do with how you approach the acquisition of new information. You are, I mean, I, I spent an hour and a half of my Sunday yesterday watching, uh, you know, your lecture from Michelle's most recent summit. Um, and you were talking a lot about, you know, like facial bone structure and, and sleep interventions. So for sure, things that are not in the typical purview of a traditional like, orthopedic physical therapist or even persistent pain physical therapist. I know for me, and um, I've, forgive, forgive the rambling prompt here, but been thinking a lot about like, like open hand versus closed fist and a lot of, a lot of contexts and, you know, a closed fist when it comes to learning would be something like I learned everything that I needed to learn in physical therapy school. And now I'm just going to bludgeon the world with this fist. Um, An open hand that's maybe too open would be like anything that even remotely sounds interesting, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole of. Every time, you know, Joe Rogan mentions uh, backward sled dragging, I'm going to I'm going to learn from Ben Patrick here. And an open hand is probably where you want to be, which is enough structure that you can be intentional about your learning objectives, but enough open mindedness that you're willing to entertain new ideas you strike me as a person that's really seems successful with getting the balance of these things right. And I suppose I'm wondering how and kind of how you think about acquiring new information just as a general tenant. Um, a couple of things. So one would be, I think that learning occurs in two phases, accumulation and consolidation. <clears throat> so you have to honor both of those things. So, and I think to your analogy of the open hand versus closed fist, I actually think you need both ends of that in order to function. You need both. You, if you're constantly open, then you, you know, it's like I'll use the example of a cell, a cell membrane. You need a semi-permeable cell membrane, right? If it's too permeable, everything comes in and out. There's no identification of the cell; it doesn't do well. If it's too impermeable, nothing can enter. You know, it can't get any nutrients, it can't get rid of waste products, and so it becomes sick. Also, the same is true with us. We need a semi-permeable. In other words, we have to have a filtering system that allows us to understand this matters to me and this doesn't. And we go through these phases of accumulation and consolidation. So what I mean by accumulation and consolidation is is there are times where I'm consuming a lot of information. And usually it's on a topic. And the way that I organize that is I have like four or five books spread out on my desk and I'm going through and I'm finding everything that kind of makes sense within a, a topic. So if it's facial bone, bone structure, it's because I'm getting patients with weird facial bones. So I'm like, okay, why is this happening? I have to understand this process. So I'm accumulating a lot of information. Okay. So I'll have all the stuff out. I'll be reading articles. Now it's a little schizophrenic looking to the, to the uninitiated admittedly, but it it's how my system works. And then, so once I connect all those dots, I usually literally connect them by doing flow charts. Anyone who's seen me give presentations knows I love the little flow chart, mind map things. That organizes my system. Okay, so I've accumulated information. Now I have to consolidate that. And what I mean by consolidating it is is looking, how does this apply to the person in front of me and all other people that come in that I might have missed this before? So I'm consolidating this information. I'm figuring out, okay, in my framework, how much does this matter? Because when you're studying it in the moment, it feels so important. And when you take a class, 
any class, you think you are left feeling, if the class is good, you're left feeling like this is the missing piece. Finally, I will have solved all of the world's problems. Okay, so what you have just undergone is a massive accumulation. Then you go back to your practice and you consolidate that information into usable aspects based on your client's needs and your individual interests. And you go round and round like that and you refine and refine and refine and then you can accumulate, 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 and then you go through that cycle. And oh. yeah. Oh no. I'm no, just... please, please, Michelle. I... <laughs> yeah. This is why we never do three people podcasts because it's just, it's a little difficult, but I'm smiling because that's exactly my frustration coming out of you know, the academic world, they don't actually teach you that process. They basically expect you to, you know, figure it out on your own. But that's what my strategy course is all about. We go through those through phases. And then it's you, the accumulation phase for like the course is like all the stuff that you've learned, like the information and experiences. Then we try to take a hold of it and make mind maps, we call them, right? And then we mm -hmm. go back and see if we can connect things. And then we go, it's it's funny because I take at least two continuing edu education courses a year. It's always the same freaking thing. The first week, they're like, identify your values. And then they're like, bop, 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 and then they move on, right? Same thing. I'm taking a course right now, and it's a business course. Same exact thing. Week one, write down your values, bop, 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 and then just move on right? And it's no one talks you through how to actually do that. And what that is, that's making a little bit of a, a fist or a little bit of a tension in that grip to hold you into something. And it you have to go through that. But the problem is no one knows how, right? They can't consolidate things. And then you can kind of um, open it up a little bit and accumulate more, but then you have to bring it back to something. And that continuous cycle is extremely important but people lack that skill so much but they still value continuing education so it's just a continuous process of accumulation accumulation well the reason that i think that that exists and i totally agree with you michelle the reason i think that exists is because the woeful aspect of the way we are taught not just in graduate school but i'm talking like since we're five yeah. which is information is fed to you you are expected to integrated without any context or understanding of its application to the whole. So no wonder people are struggling because then they go through continuing educa education classes taught by the very same metrics. So everyone wants more, but they don't necessarily need more information. They just need to know how to apply the information they already have and understand it from the context of, does this actually matter? Yeah. Doesn't matter. And who knows, it might matter in one context and not in the other. And that's where I think experience is so important in this whole process is you have to do things repeatedly to figure out if this matters or not. Yeah, I think that's a huge, like a huge point. Is it useful to me and in yes. what I do in my context yes. and my people? And I think that, I think that social media, which is an easy whipping boy, although I will continue to whip it here. The it. problem with it is, is that we now are comparing ourselves to, I should know the information that this other person that's posting on social media has. And so I'm going to go do what they're doing, but that doesn't necessarily, we are biased by the types of people that we work with. 
Like the, you're a framework for uh, a high performance strength and conditioning coach. Their framework for how to get people better is of course biased by what who, the clientele they're working with. Just like mine is biased by the more kind of, um, you know, types of clients that I see. And so that's works for that, my clients, but we always have to, as consumers of information, understand the context and how this person that's teaching this learned this information. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it doesn't have application to you, but we have to understand there, there are some inherent biases in how we apply that information based on what's worked for me and the way I apply this information in front of a person. So I'm a big student of uh, psychological biases. I, I collect them and I like to study them quite a bit. And, you know, one of the, one of the ones that pretty much everybody knows is the the primacy bias or the recency bias. And I think how that manifests here is uh, if I learn one way to treat knee pain in PT school or one of my early clinical rota rotations, uh, people that really succumb to this bias are going to say, oh, I, I already learned that. That, that. that is how we treat knee pain. And it's, you know, it's a bias because it's, it's just that. It's, it's not the ideal way of doing things. And when you were kind of giving that overview of how you think about acquiring new, new information, it, it really, it underscored for me the value of having some kind of process where you can also clear out bad information. Um, but, I don't you know, think that there's that, bad information. I just think it's, it's context specific. You know what I mean? That my that for may, sure. information may be totally right for that one scenario that may, may or may not apply to me. For sure. And maybe clearing out information is the wrong way to phrase that insofar as, uh, recontextualizing old right. information. Right. Yes. Be because I do think, I mean, the, the big biomechanical lens I'm trying to uh, study and apply more and more is this like external rotation, internal rotation, expansion, compression type thing. And that, even when you were talking about, how, you know, we were talking about like the, the, the fist and like how we're acquiring things, but we need some type of a framework. It's like, we need enough expansion that we have that we, we have some space to acquire new information. We need enough compression so that we don't, fall off the face of the earth. Yes. Just like in gait, you know, we, even if we're supinating a foot, like, like we're, we're in swing and, and the joints are opening, we need enough compression that we're not just going to blow off the outside of that foot. So I, I do think uh, that strikes me as a somewhat universal principle, be it, you know, biomechanically or in the mm -hmm. acquisition of knowledge. And I think, you know, it gets to a really meta point of, um, it's all about learning how to place things in uh, a constantly, you know, more and more accurate place within within one's framework. Totally. Yep. I, I would totally agree with that. Um, and I think that comes with experience and confidence in doing a task. And yeah, I think <laughs> one of the things that I constantly hear from from um, you know younger clinicians, younger coaches is they don't have the repetition yet to frame this information. They don't have a how to they don't have an understanding of how to categorize it. And that's very frustrating as to your point earlier Michelle. It's like they have the information but they don't know how to fundamentally go through and use it. The challenge with that is is that that's not so sexy. That's not as interesting as look at this, you know, intervention I can do to to change everybody's life. So they want to do they want to learn that stuff. But you know, you have to remember that the people who are doing those um, really interesting and fascinating um, interventions and treatment processes, they didn't get there by randomly just doing stuff. Like they have a framework and they systematically apply that. And it led them to that, that selection. 
when you're thinking about information that you're interested in, because you said it's acquisition and consolidation are your two phases. Accumulation, and consolidation, or acquisition. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we're, 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 when we're in that accumulation phase, um, obviously, like I, I know this about you, you're not perusing Instagram and looking at, you know, looking at like, oh, this is an interesting exercise. I wonder what's up with this. Well, sometimes I do though. I've got no problem with that. I, I'm genuinely interested in that. It's not a majority of the time I spend doing it, but but it is there. There's there's value in it, sure. So, but just as a, like, cause we've been talking about facial bones and facial structure and, and whatnot. So let's say you are seeing more and more patients and they have this particular presentation that you're struggling to understand. When you get home from that day in clinic, what's your first step in even trying to figure out like where you're going to look to acquire that type of information? Like what is step one in that process? So I'll, I'll I actually would take one step back and, and I would say it doesn't even doesn't start when I get home. It starts while I'm working with that person, which is I make an observation. Hmm. This is interesting. And then I will start to try things and, and assess that right in the moment. Okay. This is what I know about this. Let me reason my way through this and, and come up with something that I, I have a hypothesis and I come up with an intervention to test that hypothesis. I mean, this is basic scientific method. Because, and the reason I say that is, don't get me wrong, I do go home and research it. But if that's our only method, then we're still missing the forest for the forest of the trees because I'm I'm negating the most important thing in there, which is observation. And we do this; we are so disconnected from our intuition and our sense of self and our gut sense that we will ignore the thing that I just saw in front of me and then go home and try to read about it that someone else told me, you know, in a book or an article or whatever. And that has value. But most of the time I'm looking at it to help me connect some dots that maybe I'm missing. That's not the same as ignoring my observations. So it starts with observation and and questioning with clients like right away. Like I ask a lot of questions because I'm interested in their experience. The second piece is in terms of, and I'll I'll say this and maybe this isn't a direct answer to your question, but um I operate a lot off of what I should go learn next by what gives me goosebumps. So if I'm thinking about something, I'm like, ooh, that gives me goosebumps. That feels really important. I go research that. And, you know, knock on wood, that has almost never let me down. Because it, and I'll, you know, it's so weird. I don't know. This is some sort of universal law. When you start thinking about a problem, you will have like five different clients call you and say, hey, I'm having this exact thing you're trying to get better at. It's like, oh, you want to have head, you want to work with headaches now, Seth? Here, here's five people with migraines. Have at it. That's called the uh, no. the biter mine off effect. See, there you go. There, that, there's, there's your fun fact. That's right, Michelle. Go ahead. How many? Th- this is also a, a point as well as a lot of people want to learn or will go to an event and invest, and there's nothing wrong with that but they'll never prioritize it in their schedule, right? Yeah. Like hey, every Tuesday afternoon, this is what I'm doing. Um, is that what you do? I, yes. Yes. Um, I have admittedly not been as good about it with the new, you know, addition of, of having a baby, but yes, in general, um, I always block off time to, to learn, but, and, and, and put it in study and put it in, in my day. But again, don't discount the number one thing that you're doing for studying, which is working with people in front of you. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, but if you aren't learning then, then that's a wasted opportunity. So what I tell people that I mentor is, is like the number one opportunity that you have already blocked off time is working with another person, whether it's a coach or, or a client, you know, or, or, or as a coach or a 
as a clinician is like you have eight probably hours a day of study. Study them, observe them, take pictures, take videos, ask questions. People love that. I don't understand this idea that like you're supposed to know every single thing ever when a client walks in. Like they like it. They like when you're solving problems for them that makes them feel special, which they are. It's energizing for you as a clinician. It's so much more fun than just categorizing it based off of lazy principles because it's like, oh, that's anterior knee pain. So this is what we do for anterior knee pain. Or, you know, this is headaches. So this is what we do for headaches. That's boring. It is boring. I think there's a fallacy of certainty that a lot of clinicians are striving for. And that's why I think a lot of these three or four letter acronym biomechanical treatment systems have been really commercially successful because they don't explicitly state that, hey, if you learn the system, you're going to be able to handle any problem that you're ever going to see in the clinic. But that's the expectation that people tend to, you know, levy upon them. And that's, I think it's just such, it's such an immensely powerful thing as both a clinician, as a patient to embrace uncertainty. And a book I like to reference a lot is Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Hmm. But like, we, we, we don't, we don't ever actually know uh, why a person is presenting the way they are. We don't ever actually know how a person is going to respond to a particular intervention. Just like if you're a patient, you don't ever actually know if the surgeon that you're going to or the clinician that you're working with is the 100% right call. You're always managing uncertainty. And if you can make friends with that inherent anxiety that comes with that, you can operate in that gray area in a far more effective way than constantly just trying to hop from like, okay, I'm certain about this system. Okay, now all of that is wrong. Now I'm certain about system number two. Okay, now all of that is right. wrong. That's a much more stressful way to evolve throughout your career. I totally agree with you. Yep. Yeah. I mean, look, there is a certain amount of certainty that I think is necessary. And this is what I came back to earlier. Like we want to have a certain amount of confidence in the things that we're doing. But that's different than a a you know um, a, a highly biased you know kind of kind of scenario. So yes, totally agree with you. By listening to this podcast, you have proven that you are the type of person who values learning. However, do you have the learning skills to identify gaps in your own coaching? Make the most out of your time with your clients and going to weekend seminars and create changes in your business to make it successful for the long haul. The most important factors in getting the most out of continuing education resources is one, knowing how to consolidate information after you have spent time accumulating it. Two, knowing how to apply that information. This is a skill that can be learned, and it is also what most people fail at, which is why they struggle to get the most out of their investment in continuing education resources. Stop taking in more information without knowing what to do with it. This is why I built the 8-week live strategy course group classroom. This classroom isn't about me. It is about you. I support you by prompting questions, helping you develop skills, dissecting your knowledge and experiences into a workable framework, and providing you feedback to build something for yourself, to speak for yourself with confidence, and to build a training system around your own thoughts instead of someone else's. I'm starting a new group November 13th, 2023. 
So make sure to register between November 6th and 12th so you can quickly start learning how to make the most out of your experiences and education investments. But if you won't take my word for it, Strategy Course alumni Ryan H. said, I didn't realize how much I needed this course to take my training and business to the next level. So I hope to see you there. And now, back to the show. Seth, one other question that came in from our listeners, and this is more so in the context of if you are a patient that is, you know, selecting clinicians, you found someone, you have good rapport with them, you kind of uh, ideologically like the way that they're approaching movement or your symptoms or your pathology, um, but it doesn't seem like you're getting the results that that you had hoped for. So I guess I want to ask this question in two ways, but first from the patient angle, how do you think, you know, a, um, a consumer of healthcare uh, knows when to bail if an approach is not working? It's always really tricky to do that um, because you never really know if it's too early or too late, right? Um, in terms of the concept of should I bail? Um, I think the best way to know, and I actually think this is both, this is for, this is important. I'm going to answer this on both lenses from the clinician and from the client's perspective, which is, it's kind of what I describe as like the first crossroads in the therapeutic relationship, which is, hey, I've had some early success, early success, but I feel like I'm kind of plateauing. And I'm really, you know, not sure if this is kind of still, is this still able to help me? And this is a really important kind of aspect because it can go one of two ways, depending on how the client or the, I'm sorry, the clinician the, in my, my case or the coach answers that is really important to tell the client, is this person capable of taking me there? And so if their reasoning and their explanations are handled with authenticity and what feels logical to you, then I think you should continue for a little bit longer. Having some clear frameworks of what our expectations are in, you know, in this, in this setting. If the, if the clinician gets defensive or aggressive, when you're saying like, Hey, you know, I just don't, you know, we've had some early success, but it's not moving in the right direction. If the clinician starts to get defensive or aggressive, you know, well, you're not doing your exercises and that might be true, but it's the way that they answer it. Or, you know, or they say, well, you know, I, I know I'm right and we just need more time and all that stuff. It's not so much what they say, it's how they say it. Like my mom always used to say, you know, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. And, but I do think that that's true because that is kind of like this interview process. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of like your first fight when you're in a, you know, when you're in a relationship, which is like, okay, how does this person, it's all great. You're in the honeymoon phase, but then it's like, okay, we got lost on the way of that wedding that we're going to, and now we're bickering. And how do we, you know, how do we get through this? And how does this person handle a little bit of adversity? And that is true for both the clinician and the client. You hit a little bit of adversity. It's not going well, or maybe maybe you tried a new new exercise or new treatment and it got worse and it aggravated. And you know how does the cl clinician handle that? Well, you know I'm you know I'm sorry that that that's not of course that's not what I was anticipating. Here's why I think that happened. Let's redirect. Obviously that's not working. Um, a, a dead giveaway for me is when an exercise or intervention is clearly making it worse for the client and they ask that question to the clinician and the clinician has them continue doing it. 
I'm sure there's examples where that's not the case, but in general, that is a pretty good flag to say, I don't think that this is going to be a good fit because you need to adapt. Even if it, you, even if as a clinician, you think that is the absolute right, best exercise, it's clearly not right for that person in this scenario at this time, come back to it, modify it, change it, do it less, do it, you know, but you've got to, you've got to change that. So I think the question is, is, you know, how do they handle that kind of first crossroads? And then I think as a as a client, the big thing is, is that you have to differentiate between discomfort from doing something new because, you know, our nervous system is always looking for stability, stability and familiarity, even if that familiarity is bad for us, right? It's Stockholm syndrome. Like, you know, I don't like being a hostage, but I feel scared when I'm not with them. So, so you have to ask yourself, like I'm, you're stuck in a pattern and this, this person is trying to give you a new pattern. That's okay. In fact, that's desirable. Um, but we have to be able to differentiate the discomfort from something new and the discomfort from something that's that feels inherently wrong. And for a lot of us, because of the way we've experienced life, we don't really know ourselves very well. So it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, and as the way I see it from the, from a from a PT perspective, as the as the therapist is, um, you know. Some people just can't handle some of the discomfort of a new pattern. I'm not saying something that's new, meaning bad for them, obviously, but I'm saying just like it's it's too different for their system right now. And they're just not ready right now for that change. That's okay too. There's lots of other people that can help. But I think that having that a really important conversation, that first crossroads conversation, I think is really critical um, in understanding like when to when to stick with it or when to to kind of bail. There is a uh, former guest of this podcast who shall remain nameless, but um, him and I are both dating right now. We're we're, uh, we're not dating one another, but we're you know okay. both dating women. Um, but we were talking about just kind of the the dating game, and um, something he said, which actually lines up really well to what you just said, was if it's going well around date three or four or five, he'll just pick something to disagree with them on. Just to see, because up until that point, it's like early dating is pure honeymoon. It's going out for fancy cocktails. It's going for a walk in a park. But it, it really is telling to see how uh, a person or a pair of people do handle adversity. And I, 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 to your point, I think it's the exact same thing with a therapeutic relationship. Of, and this is why I'm so insistent. Like I consult with so many younger physical therapists that are starting their own, you know, private paid PT practices. And I'm insistent on at minimum them offering a four session treatment package and not working with anyone on a single session basis. Because I think, I think the number is actually probably six or eight, but what doesn't work from a clinical set from a, in a, in a clinical sense is much more important almost than what does provide you with some modicum of relief because that lets you further flesh out a, a much broader picture of biomechanically what might be happening here, neurologically what might be happening here. And I need a patient to have an appreciation of, of the fact that this is an iterative interactive process. It's not a list of interventions we're going to apply. And if they don't work, then you're the one that didn't apply them correctly. Yep. I completely agree. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that's most upsetting to the, you know, when I have a client that comes in, they have like, for example, a botched surgery, which, you know, happens an alarming amount. <laughs> but, you know, what I find is that it wasn't what, what leaves them most upset was not that the surgery didn't go well, typically. It's actually how dismissed they were after the surgery didn't go well by their surgeon or the surgeon staff. And I'm not here to disparage surgeons. I mean, there's, they're phenomenal. There's many, many, many phenomenal ones. But my point is, it's like when they don't go well, it's not that, oh, you know, because people get, 
the uncertainty and you know, most reasonable people understand that. But what they don't appreciate and understand is when they're like, you know, suddenly I thought we were in this together and then the surgery didn't go well. And you're like, well, what else do you want me to do? You know, go see a psychiatrist. Um, and, and so like, that is really the, the biggest problem. So I think that you're, you're correct. I, I agree with you in, in that, you know, I think establishing that rapport and that therapeutic relationship helps to navigate some of the ups and downs that are inherent in rehabilitating particularly complex issues. To go with a, to kind of close with a personal example, I mean, I've had three hip surgeries and I would say all three have been unsuccessful. Uh, two have been performed by the same surgeon, but the discussion and process leading up to both of those surgeries, as well as uh, the way that our relationship continues to be, like I, I, I sent in patients, uh, there was no, there was absolutely no talk of, I'm a hundred percent sure that this is going to fix your issue. Yeah. But I think we both agreed that the cost benefit was worth it, that, yeah. you know, at, at, at worst, what I'd be left with is, you know, probably exactly where I was at that point in time. And yeah. unfortunately that's what happened. Um, but that the upside was that this pain would go away. And I, I think that that's, a clinic on really how to manage uh, patients both as a surgeon and, and as any clinician, just embracing the uncertainty, making patients aware of the risk reward profile, uh, and then that's, just continuing. That's true to- informed consent. That's really what we mean when we say informed consent. Yep. Here are the benefits, here are the risks. Do you consent to this as we go through this together? Yeah. And really, unless you're a trauma surgeon, that's exclusively operating on people that uh, are not conscious. And and then it's really just, what do you think is appropriate at that time? It's it's always going to be some version of that. The the difference between surgery and what we do as physical therapists is that surgery does have substantially more uh, potentially permanent effects and downside than most physical therapy interventions. Seth, this is the first episode that Tim and I have done together this season. Um, with another guest and it's because we were basically fighting over who's going to take this episode and uh neither one of us wanted to miss out on it so that's how special you are to this i'm i'm flattered and honored (laughs) we appreciate your time and uh thank you so much for being on of course my pleasure yeah always you know i'm always um always down to carve out some time and and do these i hope that um you know the audience finds them helpful you're so sweet tim asked me he wanted me to point him to anything that he could read to like generate questions. And I said, there's zero. <laughs> and then I sent him the video for the uh, Boston Health and Performance Summit in, in June. And uh, is that June every year? Are those every year in June? It's in. Yeah. And actually you're there every year. So it's. And is it, it's summer. Boston, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just want to clarify. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is it the Health and Performance Summit in Boston every year attended by Seth Oberst? <laughs> yes, yes. Is there any any way you want to point if anyone wants to uh, learn more about you or? Yeah, you can. I mean, so the easiest way to find me is just um, on Instagram. And, um, you know, eventually with Michelle's enough, Michelle, enough of Michelle's prodding, I'll eventually post something worthwhile there. Um, but yeah, and then my website is sethoberst.com. And I do have a newsletter list. That's the best way because I will be sending out for sure newsletters. I think um, we kind of like an educational like kind of tidbit or case study or something. So get on that. And that's just, you can go to my website and sign up for that. Um, but, and you can also just follow me um, on social media. Would you ever consider like a Substack subscription? I actually have, I think Substack is a pretty, pretty interesting concept. Um, yes, I have considered that for sure. Okay. Um, yeah. Wink, wink. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Seth. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Seth. 
If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.